this message, uh, it's going to lean into the topic of today, but um, I hope that if you're not a dad, you don't shut me down, uh, because I, I believe that this message has, uh, has implications for all of us. Uh, as Chris said, uh, I'm a campus minister with uh, Campus Christian Fellowship at UNC, which means I get to spend my days uh, mentoring, discipling, uh, helping college students get to know Jesus better, uh, help walk with him a little bit better. But this morning, I get to share with you, and uh, I want to start off with a question. And that question is, uh, who do my children belong to? And that question might instantly be like, well, people don't belong to anybody. But if we just ask the question, who do my, who do my children belong to? It's actually a question that our society right now is kind of battling with and struggling with a little bit. And the, the, the way that the, the question is even phrased seems to implicate, I mean, there's, they're mine. <laughs> you know, like there's already ownership in the question that seems to be implied. And plenty of people would say, yes, I agree with that. But on April 24th of this year, uh, President Biden, uh, he was honoring the, the nation's teacher of the year, and he said uh, a, a quote and, and added a little bit to it, but there's no such thing as someone else's child. Our nation's children are all of our children. So here's the question, who do my children belong to? Are they mine and my responsibility, or do they belong to everyone? Are they property of the state, if you will, if you wanted to, to put it that way? In Genesis 22, uh, Abraham is asked to sacrifice his son Isaac. And I think some of us who have been in the church for a while, we have this thing uh, that a, a, a rabbi, David Foreman, likes to talk about called the lullaby effect, where there's, there's things in scripture that honestly are weird, but we've gotten so used to it or we just think like, oh, it's the Bible. And like, we just go on and we don't think about how odd some of these things are. If you take time to slow down, this is a very odd story. Uh, God has promised Abraham that he would have descendants as numerous as the stars, yet he has no children. God promises that he will have this son and through a number of twists and turns that we don't have time to go through this morning. Finally, at the age of 100 and his wife being 90, they get this promised child, Isaac. And this is a child that you should be protecting at all costs. I mean, he's, he's promised you're, you're, you're quite old by the time you finally have this kid. Um, you protect him at all costs. That is until God tells you to take a little road trip and uh, sacrifice him, which makes total sense, right? So here's just a few of the questions that pop up if you take time to slow down with the story. Why would God ask such a thing of Abraham? And why does Abraham go along with it? Abraham is not opposed to arguing with God. If you read the scriptures, Abraham argues with God plenty of times. Why no arguing here? Why is it recorded to show that Abraham is really the hero of this story? When does Isaac know? Does he know? And if he knows, why is he so calm during all of this? Why does an all-knowing God go through the trouble of making this happen when he already knows the end result? Can't he just have a conversation with Abraham? Well, before we address these, uh, let's, let's just push pause for a second. Many of us in this room, uh, we see the world through Western eyes. And that's fine. Western civilization has given us a number of great things over the years. But it can cause problems for us as we start to read our Bibles. 
And that's because the, the people that God chose to partner with to write our scriptures view the world much more through an Eastern lens, an Eastern way of seeing things, interpreting things, and communicating. So uh, let's, just, let's just walk through a, a few quick examples. Uh, if I were to ask you right now, uh, describe God to me. Who is God? Most likely, you would start to make a list. And on your list might be things like God is love, God is holy, God is just. You would make a list of attributes, what we might even call systematic theology. And that's all true and it's all good. But if you start to, to slow down as you read through scripture, I went on Bible Gateway and in parentheses, I just typed the Lord is. And I'm just gonna give you just a few quick references for how our biblical authors tend to describe God. Exodus 15, two and three, the Lord is my strength, my defense, a warrior. Second Samuel 22, two, the Lord is my rock, my fortress and my deliverer. Psalm 9, nine, the Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Psalm 23 that just about all of us know, the Lord is my they didn't write in lists, they wrote in pictures. And here's the thing, we might say, okay, well, the Lord is holy, what does that mean? Okay, it means set apart, it means perfect. Okay, end of conversation. What does it mean that the Lord is my shepherd? We have a conversation about that. What does it mean that the Lord is a rock? Man, that's, how long has that rock been here? How big is it? How immovable is it? Can we build something on it? You see, like there's conversations that start to happen when you think and write in pictures. They also wrote differently, not just as far as lists and pictures. Uh, imagine, imagine taking a class, going in and having a professor that simply gives you questions and no answers. You spend 50 minutes sitting in that room, taking notes, doing nothing but writing down questions and having no answers at the end. That's a horrible professor in our minds. Because in the West, what we do is we provide truth, we share truth, and then we give all of our supporting reasons why that is true. But Jewish writers, the people that God chose to partner with to write our scriptures, they want you to ask questions. They don't, and I know this frustrates us sometimes because we're like, I wanna go to the Bible and get answers. But lots of times you don't realize it, but you go to the Bible and you walk away with questions. How frustrating is that? That means that a Jewish teacher is doing a great job. But for us as Western people, we struggle with that. See, these questions are supposed to drop clues, breadcrumbs. They're supposed to, to give us clues on how to read a map and to find out where treasure is and to start digging because if you work for something, you care about it a lot more than when it's given to you. I mean, I know this just watching in high school. I saw kids that their parents were blessed enough to be able to give them a car and they didn't really care about the car. I saw other kids who had to struggle and work and buy their own car. Man, it was a piece of junk, but they loved it. You know what I mean? It was 14 different colors and they washed it every weekend and nobody could eat in it. You know what I mean? But like they worked for it. They owned it. They cared about it. When we read this story, we're supposed to ask questions. We're supposed to get drawn in. We're supposed to start digging. So with that in mind, let's unpause and jump into this story. In Genesis 22, 
starting in verse one. It says, sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love. All right, let that sink in. Sometimes we have what um, uh, C.S. Lewis calls um, uh, chronological snobbery where we think that somehow we're better than the people that come before us. And in this way, I think sometimes we can look and be like, oh, only we truly understand what love is because we have all these romance movies and things like that. And people before us didn't truly know what love is as if they were not also made in the image of God who is love. As if they didn't understand loving children, loving spouses and things like that. God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain I will show you. Let's fast forward a bit to the, the main event, the end of the story, the sacrifice. Sorry for the spoiler. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Let's go back to our questions. Why did God ask such a thing? And why does Abraham go along with him? Why does it all knowing God go through the trouble of setting all of this up only to stop Abraham at the end? Let me ask you something. Would it change things if you knew that this was standard during the time of Abraham? Child sacrifice was the norm. This is something that Abraham would have grown up seeing his whole life. And up to this point, as you have read through Genesis, at no point has God said, by the way, I'm not cool with child sacrifice. We have no record of that conversation. Abraham is the, the, the one who is the the beginning of monotheism, as a lot of people would say. He's the one that God chose to say, let's start putting this world back together. And with that, he had a lot of teaching, a lot of changing, a lot of stuff to do with Abraham. And so Abraham said, okay, this is what you do. This is how it goes. So let's put on our Eastern goggles. Let's look at some of these breadcrumbs that have been left for us to show us maybe where this treasure is and to start doing some digging and see what the treasure is for us. So what right does a father have to sacrifice their son? How could their thinking be this? Well, at this time, each family basically had their own gods um, that gave them protection and who they made sacrifices to and things like that. And uh, the father of the household, he had absolute power of life and death over his family, which seems crazy to us, but this is, this is the world that Abraham was living in. Children had the status of property, not of personhood. Now, think about this. See, I can't reach into your wallet and take out money to put in the offering plate. Why? It's not mine. I don't own it. That would be stealing but I own the money that's in my wallet. And so I can take the money out of my wallet and I can put in an offering. If I own my children, then I can offer them to God. See how this is, is playing out? So who do my children belong to? Imagine with me, if you will, a custody battle. Um, 
who, who gets the child? Now, in your mind, you're instantly probably thinking of things, well, like, okay, you gotta figure out where's the best home life gonna be, what's going on with the parents, let's do all this story. Let's imagine that somehow all of that stuff is completely equal, that there's no way that you can figure out that one situation is any better than the other. Who would the child go to? Our society and plenty of others have determined that that's the mom. I mean, just look at the percentage of custody battles that go into the favor of moms. And, and why do we do that? Well, not to be crude, but the, the creation and development of life based on what the father does, the father's work in it is pretty fleeting. But the mom, she's, she's home for that baby for nine months. She'll, she'll change habits, she'll change the way that she eats, the things that she drinks, all of these things to try and give the child the best chance of success and development as it grows. And then, until the, the recent advent of formula, after that child moves out of its cozy one-bedroom apartment into this crazy, scary world, she's the source of food and comfort for that, ch- that child for a while. And what's the father's contribution? 12th century teacher Maimonides, uh, he posed this question. He said, uh, what if there's actually a third parent involved? Plenty of us either have maybe struggled to have children or we know people who have struggled to have children. And it's, that's one of those questions that I have for God that like when I get to heaven, like why? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it is a frustrating thing. But again, not to be crude, but one of the things that this shows us is Two people can have all the sex that they want, but if God's not involved in the process, there's no child. There are more than two people in the creation of a child. There is a third parent involved. So what if God were to join the custody battle? I mean, okay, the, the baby spent time in the mother's womb, but um, who made the womb? Who... Uh, who is it that decided the gender of the child? Decided the shape of its nose? Decided what, uh, what talents it would have? Knit it together specifically in the way that they wanted to design. And, and not only that, once the child is born, who provides air or causes the heart to beat while they're living? Something that no, no earthly parent can do. So who does my child belong to? On this topic in the call to sacrifice Isaac, uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs wrote this. What God was doing when he asked Abraham to offer up his son was not requesting a child's sacrifice, but something quite different. He wanted Abraham to renounce ownership of his son. He wanted to establish as a non-negotiable principle, children are not property of their parents. See, my kids bear the image of Allison and me. I mean, we see it in their eyes. We see it in their, their noses, their talents, facial expressions, and girls, I'm sorry. We see it in their height. Um, we, we see it all over the place that they are our kids. Uh, but there's a third parent. They also are marked with the imprint. They bear the image of God. My children don't belong to me, and they definitely don't belong to you. They belong to God. Allison and I have the privilege and the responsibility to raise them in such a way that as they go through this life, that they shine the image of their heavenly father. 
That's our job because we don't own them. We are, we are stewards of our children, not possessors, not owners. And the thing is, is we should not take this lightly since the Lord is the one who owns them, who they belong to. Uh, and and there, maybe if you would say they're on loan or we have the stewardship. I mean, listen to what Jesus has to say about kids. If anyone causes one of these little ones to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Oh, Jesus is so kind and flowery and all of his language and so loving. So you start messing with kids. You get what I'm saying? We don't own them. We're stewards and we have a serious responsibility. Let's zoom in on Abraham. It's, it's an odd story, but clearly he's supposed to be seen as the hero. I mean, if you, if you read it, you're like, that's weird, but like he did everything he was supposed to do, I guess. I mean, he, he was tested by God. He was able to show God that, you know, he wouldn't hold anything back, even his, his only son that he loved. But is there more? What if we dug a little deeper into this story? So a literary device that a lot of our Bible uh, authors use is something called a chiasm. Um, and uh, it's, it's something, if you've ever been reading your Bible and you're like, didn't I just read that? Like, it seems to repeat itself often or it's like written really weird or whatever. You might have just stumbled into a chiasm. A chiasm is where the writing of the section, the, the end kind of mirrors the beginning in some sort of way. And it's pointing you to a center part, a place where you're supposed to be digging, looking for the treasure. Take a look, uh, this cheeseburger uh, that we're gonna put up here. This, for a visual reference, this is a perfect chiasm. All right, well, kind of, we'll, we'll get there. But it has buns, you know, top and bottom, a repeating sort of thing. And then you have your probably ranch dressing, maybe mayonnaise, I don't know. We're gonna go with ranch. Um, then on the bottom, uh, there, there's some ketchup. So we got sauces that are touching each bun. And then at the top, you've got two toppings that come from animals, you know, the bacon and the cheese, which you might say is a treasure. That's where I said, maybe it's not a perfect chiasm, but just go with me. And then at the bottom, you've got some toppings that come from the earth, two of them, lettuce and tomato. And based on this picture, you have in the center, hopefully, a perfectly cooked burger, the treasure that you're looking for, all right? So imagine that all of that is wording, all right? Uh, it's phrases. If you remember, as we read the story, it starts off with Abraham being called and it ends with Abraham being called and both times he answers, here I am. Is it possible that we have buns to our chiasm? Is there something for us to search and to start digging for? So in, in, in verse one and verse 11 is the, the here I am part. And, uh, and then we'll, we'll go to, to the next section. In verse six, you have that wood is, is put on Isaac's back. Well, how would the wood be put on his back? Most likely the wood would be tied together, bound in some sort of way and placed on him. Well, in verse nine, you have that Isaac is bound and he is placed on the wood. You see in these connections. We go further in verse six and in verse eight, in both of those, we have this phrase, the two of them went on together. And all of this points to a center of this story. Verses seven and eight. And now that we know where X marks the spot, we know where the treasure is located, it's our time to start 
digging, seeing what has been left for us. So let, let's read this conversation, the, these, these verses, and see what there is. Isaac spoke up uh, and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Now, this might not seem like much. You might be like, that's not much of a treasure. Like, they could do a little bit better, right? I mean, but this is the only conversation we have between this father and son in all of scripture. It's pretty amazing when you think that Abraham is the father of our faith and Isaac is the next one to carry it on. And this is the only recorded conversation that we have. Not only that, and I don't know Hebrew, so I have to trust people who do. Apparently, it starts off written horribly. The grammar is awful. There's no way that you would actually write this. What if, if it would literally translate and our translators didn't try to clean it up to, to make it a little bit more palatable for us, it would say, and Isaac said to Abraham, his father, and he said, my father. <laughs> what? What did he say? You know what I'm saying? It would be, and here's the thing. Rabbi David Foreman points out, along with the bad grammar, there seems to be this this obsession with making sure that we understand that Abraham is Isaac's father, as if we don't already know this going into the story. Now, if this read, and Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and he said, my father, like the grammar would at least be like, okay, but it would still be a weird sentence. You know what I mean? So it, the way that it's written, it's almost like Isaac starts a conversation and then he interrupts that conversation by calling out to his dad. Isaac needs to call out to his father. And here's the thing, in this situation, father might be the last thing that Abraham wants to hear because he knows what awaits them when they get to the top of that mountain. He's taken his only son, the son whom he loves. And why is Isaac stopping a conversation is it possible that he started noticing his surroundings? Hey, we, got, we have fire, we have wood. We know from earlier in the story that there's a knife. Uh, but uh, dad, where's the sacrifice? Something doesn't seem quite right. There's a reason he needs to call out for his father. This, this conversation is the center of the chiasm, but is there a center to the conversation? The Hebrew word said shows up five times. Hmm, maybe there's a center in the number five. So it shows up five times, but our translators, to make things again more palatable for us, didn't use the word said each time. They used different words to be able to make it read a little bit better for us, smooth it out a little bit. So I'm, I'm gonna read it um, and, and highlight these words. Isaac spoke up, or he said, and said to his father Abraham, uh, or said to his, yeah, to his father Abraham, father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, or said. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, or said, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. The center said happens to be the point where Abraham probably would want to run away the most. It's where he calls out to him and, and Abraham said, here I am, my son. See, this chiasm begins and ends with Abraham being called by God and answering, here I am. 
And in the very center of it, he's called by his son in a time of need, in a time of uncertainty. And he says, here I am. At the center is this this kid calling out to his dad. Is this this coincidence? Is this because Hebrew lacks nuance in its language and all of it? No, this is very intentional. Given enough time, I'm convinced that every godly parent runs into a situation and can tell you of a difficult time in their, their journey, in their walk, where God has called them and they have looked and said, here I am, I will love honor and respect you. And then something pops up with one of their kids and their kid calls out and they say, here I am. I will love, honor, and respect you. Sometimes though, those paths feel like they're in opposite directions. It doesn't seem like you can walk both of them side by side. And as parents, we, we pray, we worry, We ask questions, we love, we try to figure it all out. But uh, most of all, we say, here I am. I don't know how to walk these two seemingly opposing paths at the same time, I don't know what to do. But I know this, God has called me and I'm gonna say, here I am. My child has called out for me and I'm gonna say, here I am. I'm not walking away from either of them. This is what makes Abraham the hero of this story. In the midst of not knowing what to do, he knows the right thing to do. Here I am. As I was researching for this this message, I found some things that were were pretty interesting. Do you know that dad's active play style, first off, we play differently, surprise, surprise, but our active play style and slower response time to toddlers and infants when they're experiencing frustrations. It actually helps them in problem solving and developing independence. Crazy. The positive care of dads is associated with positive moral behavior. Also, kids being twice as likely to attend college and 80% less likely to be incarcerated. This one was probably the most mind-blowing to me. In a 26-year-long study, researchers found that the number one factor in children developing empathy was regular involvement with their dad. That kind of blew me away because we're the ones that get the reputation of not having emotions. Yet, the number one factor in developing empathy has to do with our involvement with our children. Dads who have a close relationship with their children are more likely to see them carry on the family's religious practices, where children with absent or emotionally distant dads tend to see God as distant and wrathful, sometimes resembling an absent father. So dads, what do do we do with all of this? I mean, I can't tell you, I, I don't know what journeys you're going to be taking. I don't know what your paths are gonna look like, but I'll tell you two sections of scripture that have been uh, a, guiding, uh, a guiding light, maybe you would say, for me. First one is 1 Timothy 4.16. Be careful about the way you live and about what you teach. Keep on doing this and you will save not only yourself, but the people who hear you, which are gonna include your children. See, if you've ever seen the movie Monsters, Inc., kids are like Roz from Monsters, Inc. Like they're always watching. You know, like if you want your kids to serve, to be compassionate, to stand up for what is right, 
in this world, to care for the alien, the orphan, and the widow, to be a force for good, then watch the way that you live. Be careful about the way that you live. Model it. Teach the right things. Another scripture that's been a guide for me uh, goes back into Deuteronomy 6. It says this, these commands are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. See, it's, I'm thankful for youth ministers. I'm, I'm thankful for people who come alongside. But you know what? Uh, biblically, it's Allison and my job to be the youth minister for our kids. It's our job to discuss scripture with them. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Write them on the door frames of your house and on your gates. You might look a little weird in this day and age, but eh, give it a try. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord. Fear and serve him only. Model reading the Bible for your kids. Talk to them about the scriptures that encourage you, that, that, that push you on, that, um, uh, that inspire you. But don't be afraid to also share the ones that frustrate you and confuse you. Give them that permission, have those conversations. Encourage them to read. Maybe read along with them. I mean, it doesn't have to be like, we're gonna sit down every night and we're gonna read. But like, maybe it's like, hey, this week, uh, what, what chapters do you wanna read? And maybe you do that and you go for a walk or grab ice cream or play a game of cards and you talk over what it is that God had taught y'all to that week. Ask them what they're reading. Ask them about the classes that they go to. Ask them about the sermons that they sit in with you. Make it normal that you're the place that they go to have those conversations because they will have them. It'd be so much better to have them with you. But what about when things don't go right? Uh, I was one of those kids, my dad was not around for my teen years. And even when I was younger, he was in the Navy and he was, he was out a lot. I was primarily raised by my mom and I, I love my mom. Uh, I think uh, my mom did a phenomenal job. I might be biased, um, but she's, she's the best mom I have, you know? Um, but she, she did great, but there were things that she was incapable of doing. Just, just not able uh, to be there when, when I, would, I started hitting those teenage years. Thankfully, my friend Sarah Lynn uh, started picking me up for church about halfway through uh, high school for me. And uh, her family always had Sunday lunch. And so there was no taking me back home. I just automatically went over and joined them for lunch. And uh, as time went on, his youth group was on Sunday night. I started actually just spending my whole Sunday there and getting taken home at night. I, I joined the Lewis family. I became a Lewis at least for one day out of the week. Her dad, Mr. Keith, he was the preacher and he was weird. I didn't understand. Uh, I, I, I knew, I wasn't th at this point 16 years old. I'm not thinking marriage. I'm not thinking kids. I'm not thinking any of that. But I am looking and being like, there's something different about this household. There's something that I want that I don't, I don't have. And to watch the way that he interacted with his kids was just, it blew me away. And I, he, he retired um, a few years ago and I, I went up and I finally told him, I said, you know, Mr. Keith, I just gotta let you know, um, I started watching you like I had discovered a new species in the wild. Like you didn't make sense to me, but I wanted what you had. And for better or worse, uh, my kids don't have the example of my dad uh, to thank for the type of dad that I am today. They have Mr. Keith, 
That's who I looked to and who I emulated because I, not only did I not have another example, but man, that was the example that I wanted and I needed. The list of men that I learned from goes on. I mean, Mr. Buddy, he was always encouraging. And I remember one specific time that in love, he rebuked me in a way that I, I desperately needed. Dave McCants, he is probably the most confident man I know. Some people might even say on the verge of arrogance. Um, I love him. He was the first guy to ever talk to me about how there were things in the Bible that didn't make sense to him and that he didn't know how to square up with his faith. Really? Mr. Confidence? How does that happen? But I tell you what, man, that was so instrumental for me early on to know I could have a solid faith and still have questions. The two are not exclusive to each other. Jonathan Pointer, <laughs> I remember one day, he was a weird, weird dude. Uh, I remember one day, he just out of the blue said to me, he said, you know, I'll never be rich. And I'm, I'm new as a Christian, you know, I don't know this whole thing. And you know, I'm coming from an aspect where like you're, you, you strive to be rich, right? That's the American dream. And I was like, why? Why sell yourself so short? He was like, oh, no, no. He's like, I was reading in Proverbs this morning, chapter 30, verses eight and nine, and I read about uh, how if you're rich, the, the potential downfall that you might end up trusting in your riches and disown the Lord. Uh, and I don't want that to happen. So I prayed that God would never, never allow me to be rich. And I trust that he's gonna answer my prayers. <laughs> what? Like, who does that? Who, who takes their relationship with the Lord that seriously, takes scripture that seriously, instantly prays and says, and I know the Lord's gonna answer, and then decides to share it with like a 16-year-old kid. We weren't talking about rich, riches. Like he just out of the blue, out, man. But you know what? I, these men, when I didn't have somebody, were, were the people who gave me all of these examples and all these things that I've carried with me that have helped to shape me into who I am today. See, kids don't ask somebody to be their mentor. <laughs> kids don't go, can I follow you? That, that doesn't happen. They just watch and they take things in. And this is where all of us come in. See, although children belong to God, um, I believe in the wisdom of the African proverb that says it takes a village to raise a child, or let's put it in church language, we're all part of a body. Some of us are fingers, noses, toes, eyeballs. We're different things. And, and we all come together to make this thing, to be, able, to be able to help our kids become that next generation to where hopefully it's not said of us, like it said of Joshua, that after Joshua and his generation passed away, there was no one who knew the Lord. Hopefully we continue passing these things on. So what do we, what do, we do with this together? I'm gonna to give everyone the same next step that I gave the dads. Be careful about the way you live and about what you teach. As a former kid who was always watching and as, as a dad who has two kids in this church that I know are always watching, um, I, I just beg you, watch the way that you live and not just when you step into here because you can't fool kids. Watch the way that you're living outside of this building. Watch the things that you believe and you teach and that you say, because they're watching everybody from the greeters to the teachers to maybe their most favorite people, the people who pass out donuts, to <laughs> tech people, to people on the stage. They're watching everybody and they're taking it all in. It's not just your walk with the Lord that's affected by the way that you live and the things that you believe and that you teach. 
Strive to be like the Apostle Paul who knew that people needed an example to follow. Where he said to the Corinthian church, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And if I can say two, two last things. Uh, one is specifically to the ladies. Um, if you see a guy in this church doing a good job as a dad, um, as, as a servant, as a greeter, doing all of these different things, uh, let him know that you see and that you appreciate him. Guys are really simple creatures. And I'm not trying to talk down about us. I'm just trying to give you an insight because y'all aren't. Um, and sometimes I think that you think that we're like you and we're not. Like we're really quite simple. A few weeks ago, Chris said that, that a question that guys ask all the time is, can I do it? Um, whereas the, the question that girls ask is, will I be noticed? Will I be valued? I'm gonna say it slightly differently. Ladies, you tend to get your self-worth based on who you are. And that's a wonderful thing. And that is, that is the image of God that I believe is imprinted on you that helps all of us in the community to learn. One of the ways that we, we start off praying to God, God, you're holy, you're just, you're all of these things. This is an aspect of his image that is, is specifically placed on you. Um, we're on the flip side for guys. We tend to get our self-worth based on what we do. And again, this is the aspect of the image of God that's kind of placed on us. I mean, look at God. You're the God who saves. We, you're the God who brought us out of Egypt. You know, like we remember the things that he has done. We also thank him for those things. Now, I'm not saying that I don't care about who I am or the guys don't care about who they are any more than to say that, that ladies don't take any pride in the work or the jobs that are put in front of them. But if you want to speak the heart language, you can tell me that I dress nice or that my hair looks great today. Um, you know, like I smell wonderful, whatever, whatever kinds of things. And I'll, you know, it's not that I'm going to say, Pfft. I mean, yeah, it'd be nice for a moment. Man, if you want to get to my heart, if you really want to speak my language, you start telling me that I'm doing a good job. Uh, I've, I've actually never told, I don't think I've ever told Allison this. I still remember my first Father's Day card. Um, I, I don't remember the color. I don't remember the picture. I don't remember the, the pre-written thing. And I don't even remember exactly what Allison wrote. And you're like, so you remember this card so very well. But <laughs> here's the thing that I do remember. This is before my kids were able to even scribble anything down. But I remember Allison writing something along the lines of, you're a great dad. Like, I'm glad that you're the dad to, to our kids. And to hear from, um, to hear from one of the people that's the most important person in my life, that the job that I look at as the most important job that I have, that I take the most seriously, that she looked, if she would have said, hey, you could do this better or you could do this better, Clearly, I can. All of us can. That would have gone one in ear out the other. But for her to be like, you're doing a great job. I can't tell you the amount of times over the years that I have drawn back on that, where that has pushed me to keep on trying to be a better dad because I wanted to continue to have Allison look at me and to say, man, you're doing a good job with the most important job that you've been given by God. I... I I'm gonna to continue to be maybe a little, a little bit vulnerable here. Uh, I'll speak for myself, but I don't think that I'm, that I'm only speaking for myself. I do think that uh, having a number of conversations with guys, I'm speaking for guys. All of my biggest fears have to do with failure. They have to do with 
Am I a good enough dad? Am I a good enough campus minister? Am I a good enough husband? It's, it's all the, the jobs, it's all the things that I do. I, I don't wanna get to the end of life and to think that I'm a failure at those things. I, I don't care if my clothes don't match. In high school, I had a rule. If I had three or more patterns or nine or more colors, something had to match. Like, that's the person that I am, okay? I don't care about those things. This hairstyle, this beard, it's not for fashion. This is easiest. I can take naps and it doesn't mess up my hair. This is easy. I don't have to shave. Like, there's not a whole lot of thought that goes into it. But it's the failure aspect. In a society that makes dads the butt of the jokes, I mean, when's the last time you've seen a dad be the, the, the superhero in a sitcom? When's the last time you've seen it in movies? And how many times do you have guys making the dumb decisions, getting beat up, doing all of these kinds of things? In a society that in our desire to elevate motherhood, we don't really know how to build up, but we know how to tear down. We have just torn down fatherhood. In a society that does that, you have no clue how much a little encouragement goes for guys. We're simple creatures. And I can see a number of guys shaking their heads as I'm saying all of this. We're simple. We just want to know that we're respected, that we're doing a good job. The last thing for the kids that are in here, uh, as you pick your involuntary uh, mentors that you're not telling them about, and as you're watching and, and looking at all of these things, um, I encourage you first look to Jesus and his words so that you know the kind of people you should be looking to and making sure that those people are following Jesus as an example. And don't be afraid to ask us questions because all the people that I know in this church, uh, they wanna see you succeed. They, they wanna see you do well and they are willing to answer questions and to help out. So who owns my kids? Not me, but man, I've got one of the best jobs in the world of being able to look after them. And I pray that all of you will join me in watching the way that you live, watching the things that come out of your mouth so that we as a body can be able to help raise the next generation to be able to know the Lord.